If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Philippians. And uh, we're going to look at another passage of Scripture that is in the cold case that we've been studying. So uh, Philippians chapter 2, some familiar verses, and I want to really focus on one phrase uh, together this morning. And I think we'll start actually at verse 1, and we'll read to the end of verse 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Father, we come before you this morning and this is just an amazing um, explanation of something that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. How is it that God, the eternal God, became a man and walked amongst us? Why was that even necessary? Father, we do need your help to understand both how that happened and why it was necessary. But one of the lessons that Paul wants us to learn and understand from it is this tremendous humility that was involved when Christ stepped into humanity. As he set aside the prerogatives of God and limited himself to the boundaries of a human form and being. That's incredible humility. And Father, we as your people can use more humility. We can use it in our response to our spouses. We can use it in our response to our parents. We can use humility as we gather with your people and we all have different ideas and ways of doing things. We can do it when others suggest a way to do something that is different from the way that we think it ought to be done. We can show humility in our workplaces, Father. There are so many avenues in which we can learn from Christ's example and realize that that is the best way to serve you and to reflect your image. So, Lord, I pray that as we wrestle with this phrase and this text this morning, that there would be something in it that maybe for some of us a a light bulb will go on about something we've never thought about when it relates to Christ becoming a man. Maybe for others of us it will be a time when we are just reminded of things that we have known but haven't thought about for a while. I pray, Father, that even though at the end we would be all filled with awe and wonder and glory at what you have done to bring about our salvation. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're opening up our cold case file again. If you've been with us for the last uh, three weeks, this is our fourth week, and Uh, considering this file, and it's really a file on the birth or the birth of Jesus. Why was he born? 
Many of us have set aside thinking about this for 11 or so uh, months, and now we jump back into it. And so we're just looking at the evidence that the Bible presents um, with fresh eyes and wondering if there's something that we've missed that may help us understand a little bit more about the birth of Christ and why he was born. We've touched on the fact that he was born to give us life. How could he give us life? Well, because he was the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. We looked at the fact that he was born in order to reveal the truth to us. Well, how can he do that? Well, he came from another world. He came into our world from uh, another kingdom, and he comes into our world as the, again, eternally existent Son of God, and he comes into our world as God. Therefore, he is the one that can speak absolute truth into our world and into our lives. And then last week, we looked at the fact that uh, he's appeared And how did he appear? Well, he appeared through the child born to Mary. And why did he appear? Well, he appeared to save his people or save us from our sins. And he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. We don't often think about Christmas in those terms. That wouldn't make a great headline. Uh, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. But that's one of the key reasons why Jesus entered into humanity. And so this morning, I am just shocked by this phrase that is in uh, Philippians chapter 1, and it's basically in verse 7, where it's variously said he came to take on human flesh, or he came to be born as a human. And that's really quite a staggering thing when you figure we've been wrestling with the fact that, just wrapping our heads around the fact that Jesus was actually God, the eternally existent God. And we wrestle with, well, how in the world does God enter into human flesh? And why does God enter into human flesh? And so it's important for us to open this cold case file and look at this verse just a little bit more and uh, sort of be overwhelmed, I think, at realizing who it was that uh, came into our world. It's a staggering claim, this claim, that the Word became flesh or that God became visible in Christ Jesus, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman. That is just a staggering claim that the God who created this world and everything in it, the God who sustains it by the power of his word, that God entered into the womb of Mary and was born as a child. As God has always been involved in our world, you can find that um, going back to the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and they were hiding in shame. It says, in the cool of the morning, God came to them walking in the garden. Don't know exactly how that happened, but it clearly says God entered into the garden to communicate with them. There's another example, obviously, in the Tower of Babel, when the people were sinning in a huge way, and God said, well, let us go down and actually see if, um, if, if what we hear and what we understand is taking place. And so God entered into time and space again and investigated what actually was happening at Babel. There's another time in which we read of that same thing, and it's the Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, when the cry of sin um, was reaching up to heaven, God said, well, let us go down and see if what we hear is actually taking place. And so God again entered into human space and time. He's always known what goes on in our world. He's always understood the environment in which we live in. It's not some sort of abstract relationship that God has with our world and you and I in this world. But what is really staggering is that God now enters into our world as one of us, as a human being with flesh and blood. 
He didn't live this life of detachment. He lived a life of involvement. He came into our world where he could see human sin, where he could hear human swearing and blasphemy, where he could see human disease and observe human mortality and poverty and squalor. God took on flesh. That is an incredible statement. And so I just want us to dig through that a little bit and ask some questions on it. Why does it matter? Why is the humanity of Christ a necessary gospel truth? Why does it matter that we understand and we believe and we share with our families and our children that God took on flesh and was born as a baby? See, natural eyes can only take us so far. There's a place in which then we need spiritual wisdom. We need a different set of glasses on to understand the reality of that truth. And that is why just on paper, the the God becoming flesh is just a bizarre concept. But I think there's a spiritual battle for this truth, which is helpful for us to wrestle with because it is a hard truth. Do you know that the first heresy of the church was a heresy of this magnitude? Did Jesus take on humanity. That was the earliest heresy that's recorded in the Bible of how the church viewed this particular point of view or some in the church. They began to teach that there was no way, there was no possible way that God would come to this earth in human flesh. Now there was a number of reasons why they, why they might have thought that, but they denied that God took on humanity. They denied that, denied that God took on flesh. And belief in that was uh, was a line in the sand, though, that John drew and said, no, we have to draw a line in the sand here. And this is what he said. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Do you see what John is saying? He's saying to attack the humanness of God was to attack the very heart of Christian faith. It was to attack the very word of God. And John continues and he says this, every spirit that, is not, that, that does not confess that Jesus is from God is a, spirit, is a spirit of the Antichrist. In other words, a lie of the greatest magnitude to deny the humanity of God, if we can put it that way. Why would that be so? Why might one deny that? Well, possibly because they thought it was beneath God to stoop to that level. I don't even understand a comparison of, of, of something that might help us understand what it took for God, who made this world and everything in it, who's eternally existent, to actually bind himself, to constrain himself in a body. It's beyond my sort of ability to comprehend. But they thought, maybe that's how some thought. And, and especially when they looked at material flesh, and they saw that as evil. They saw that as corrupt. They, they, they saw that as something to be destroyed, something to, to beat down. And so for many, they thought it is just inconceivable that a holy, pure God would embrace sinful, wicked flesh. But the Bible tells us that our bodies are a glorious thing. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says, God made uh, man and woman in his image. In his image and likeness, God made them. 
That's not just our soul, that's our, our physical being, our soul and our body. We have been made in the image of God to reflect the image of God. Not that God has a body, but our bodies have been created to reflect the glory of God. You read Psalm 8 and you see the dignity that is ascribed to men and women as the psalmist praises God for the beauty of creation in humanity. And you read Psalm 139 and you see there God's intimate involvement in the creation of our bodies. So the Bible speaks highly of physical flesh and of the body. And then Genesis 9 tells us, don't kill. Whoever kill, takes life, God will take their life. There's such value and human dignity to the body. So at best, these people who were denying this truth were misunderstanding the human predicament of sin and needing a savior. And at worst, they were denying the human predicament that we are sinners under the wrath of God, sinners in need of a savior, sinners in, a need, in need of a way back to God. And so the testimony of scripture this is a spiritual truth. You have to go back to the Bible and say, do I believe God's witness to the truth that he came to this earth through a baby that was conceived in Mary's womb? Secondly, it's an there's a spiritual explanation to that truth, and this is the virgin birth. It's important to talk about this. The virgin birth describes how God entered into our world. It's not some bizarre um, Christian uh, story or myth or fable that we tell, but the virgin birth tells us the way God appeared, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, how he was born through his conception in Mary. And we read of this in, in Matthew. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took this way. The birth of Jesus, the man, Christ, God, took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Moses, or Moses, wrong guy, um, right woman, wrong guy. Um, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had sexual relations, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. There's a miraculous work of God to bring about the union of the eternal Son of God and human flesh. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream in another place. Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the virgin birth that makes possible and explains how God could enter into human flesh. This is how God sent his son into the world as a man. His full humanity is evident from his ordinary birth. He was born like you and I are born, entered into the birth canal and, and entered into this world. He was fully man, but his full deity is evident from the fact that at his conception, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't fully understand it, uh, but I see why it is necessary. The virgin birth asks, helps us answer another question too, is Jesus sinless? It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. There's lots that we can say about that. But holy means he didn't inherit human sin from Adam. He is not 
related to Adam in the same way you and I are related to Adam by birth through our mothers and our fathers. He is related to Adam through adoption by Joseph. So the humanity of Jesus is a necessary gospel truth because the Bible tells us it is so. But it's a necessary saving truth as well. It's necessary for our salvation as those who, who, who realize our desperate plight and wonder how in the world can that ever be solved? See, was, was Jesus fully human or did he only seem to be human? Why does it matter that the savior of the world, God, became fully human? Why does that matter? Why is it necessary for God to enter into the human experience as we experience it? born into the world as we are. Can't we get around that some way? The scripture doesn't let us do it. It goes to great lengths to describe to us the humanity of Jesus. Have you thought that through? Is that part of your meditations as we get close to Christmas Christmas now? It was necessary for Jesus to take on human flesh. The humanity of Jesus, and we can cover this very quickly. Um, uh, Clearly, he was born When the fullness of time came, God sent his son into the world to be born of Mary. He had a birth like all of us had a birth. His human existence is described in many ways in Romans or Hebrews. It says, in the days of his flesh. It's a clear implication that in the days of his flesh, Jesus, it says, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to him who was able to save him from death. In the days of his flesh, he lived, he he grew as a baby into a young boy and as a young boy into a young man. He grew in wisdom and stature. He learned things. He observed things. His body grew. It it grew physically. His mind grew. He grew like you and I grow and like our children grow. He experienced hunger, the Bible tells us. He experienced thirst. He experienced fatigue. There was facts that he was ignorant of. For, uh, for instance, the, when the Lord would return or when God would send him back. He says, no one knows that except my father who is in heaven. He experienced physical pain to the point of dying on the cross for us. He experienced emotional pain. He experienced grief. Grief, when Lazarus died, it describes his grief there. Uh, when he was in the garden, he was so overwrought with the, pers- with the prospect of his death. It says that he sweat Um, drops of blood. It was so intense for him to walk through that. Jesus was fully human. He had a body, flesh and blood as you and I have. I was reading in Matthew, it says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught there in the synagogue and they were astonished. And this is what they said. Where did this man Get this wisdom from and these to do these mighty works. And is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not Joseph's son? We've seen him. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus was so fully human to those who lived with him and worked with him for 30 years, even to his brothers and his sisters who grew up in his own household, to the neighbors that he, that he interacted with. He was so fully human that he was nothing more than human to them. 
They looked at him and said, this, this is Joseph's son. This is Mary's son. We know his brothers and sisters. And then he died a very human death. Crowns of thorns on his head, nails in his hands and his feet, a spear in his side producing blood and water. The soldiers came with the intention to break his legs. His body was taken down from the cross and prepared for burial. The real humanity of Jesus is beyond dispute. In every way, he was like us, flesh and blood. Okay, I don't, you might say, okay, I still don't get it then. Okay, you've convinced me. You can read the Bible and it will tell you the truth about Jesus. Why, why is it necessary that Jesus, and we understand Jesus to be both the eternally existent Son of God and at the same time, fully human Son of Mary? Well, one, we need a mediator. And I'll work these through, and they may come backwards, but we need a mediator. God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might have a perfect mediator between us and God. Now think this through. This is what Paul says in Timothy. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, the man, the Son of God. What does a mediator do? You think this through. Some of you maybe work in union. Some of you have maybe gone for marriage counseling. Some of you have been in a dispute. But what does a mediator do? Well, they represent both parties in a dispute. A mediator brings two parties together and they work out the differences. They help one side understand the other side. And the best mediator in any negotiation is one who perfectly understands both sides, who perfectly understands the way the other side is thinking and, and what they feel and what they experience. Would it be possible for a human being to mediate something before a holy God? If you think that true, or if you think that, not a chance. How in the world can a human being ever understand the mind of God, ever understand the purposes of God, ever understand the holiness of God, the purity of God, the might of God? This is what happened to Job. Job came into the world and uh, he experienced incredible suffering. And um, finally, after wanting to die in the first chapters, he says, no, I don't want to die. I want justice. And so he goes before God and he says, I want justice. And God says to him, okay, well, let's just sit down for a minute and let me show you a few things. And God blew Job out of the water with his might and his power and his wisdom and his existence. And at the end of it, Job was left humbled, repentant, saying, I didn't have a clue. So a man cannot represent men before God because he has no clue about God. And how does God fully understand us? This is hard to understand, but how does God fully understand us? Well, that's why it is so critical to understand the work of Christ as both God and man, to mediate between God and man. The one area of mediation that is most needed is the issue of sin. 
our sin, the problem of our alienation from God, the problem of God's wrath towards us. We need somebody to come between us and God and and represent us. And Jesus does that perfectly because he was fully human. He understands what it is to be us. He understands the flesh. He understands the weakness. He understands the power of temptation. He understands all of that and he can then take that before God and he understands God's holiness and God's uh, anger and God's wrath towards sin. He understands God's purity and God's justice. And so he can bring those two parties together. He's able to address the need arising from our alienation from God. I mean, if, if you don't trust in Christ today, who will mediate your position before God? Who will represent you before God? Will you represent yourself? before God. And so we need a mediator and that that role is perfectly fulfilled in the God-man Jesus Christ. But we also need a savior. The Bible describes him as sinless and I, I don't have time to go into that this morning. Simply, there are numerous places in the Bible which tell us again and again and again that Jesus committed no sin. That in him there was no sin whatsoever. And that leads then to our need for a substitute. The Son of God himself stood in my place. As only a human, his sinlessness could only have been sufficient for him. Do you understand that? If, if Jesus was only a human, his perfect life would only have been good for him, or if he wanted to, he could give it on behalf of one other person. He couldn't give it for a multitude of people. But if Jesus is also God, then that perfection can be applied to whoever would put their faith and trust in him. See, the Bible tells us again that as the Son of God, the Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, he can take our place, and only he can take our place. John John was looking out one day, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sins of me? No, the sins of the world. In another place, he says he is a propitiation for our sins. That's a word that means he, he resolves the problem of God's anger towards us because of our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews 2, 16 to 17 says, surely it is not angels that he helps. You see, God didn't become an angel to save the angels. He says, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, you and I share in flesh and blood, he himself also took on flesh and blood. We need a substitute who is one of us to legitimately take our place before God. Again, if Jesus had only been a man, he could only have died for his own sins. But Romans tells us, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he has condemned sin in the flesh. 
Isaiah, this is a piecing together of some of Isaiah. He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was upon him. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. My righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Corinthians tells us that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The humanity of Christ was necessary to live in perfect obedience before God. The deity of Christ was necessary so that that offering of his body could apply to all humanity and all who would put their trust in him. So we need a mediator. We need a savior. We also need a sympathizer. I don't know if you work through this. This is, this is amazing to work this through and think this through. And I, I don't know if we as God's people actually work on this enough. God the Son took on a human body when he entered into Mary's womb and into our world. He took, upon him some, he took upon himself something that he was not before the incarnation. God added something to himself. And work that through. I'm just going to leave it. But the Bible tells us that when Christ came, he took on flesh. And by that, it means that God now experienced the reality of living as you and I live. For his 33 years of life, Christ obeyed God in our place as our representative. He was tempted in every way as we are tempted. He grew in obedience. That doesn't mean that he disobeyed, but that means as his, as his, his ability as a human learned things, he grew to obey his parents. And increasingly, they put on more, more, more clear guidelines or more difficult guidelines. He grew in his obedience to God. He doesn't mean he never sinned, but he grew in what it means to trust God in any and every single situation that one could face. And therefore, because he has suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are, tempt are tempted. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness because he is tempted as we are. Do we understand that, loved ones? Do you, do you ever find yourself sort of sitting and thinking, well, God really doesn't know what I'm going through? He, he really has no clue, actually. Or Jesus really, you know, like, he wasn't married. How, how could he be tempted with the things that I face in marriage? Or he didn't have a tablet. How was he tempted? He faced every kind of pressure, every kind of temptation to walk away from God, to act in a way that wasn't becoming of God, to trust in himself rather than in God, to see that what God was doing was not good. He faced all of those so that there is not any circumstance in our life where we can say, Jesus doesn't understand. And if you do conclude that, and if it were true, then Jesus wouldn't be a complete savior. Never, ever take yourself to the place where you say God doesn't understand. This is why God took on human nature. This is one of the reasons he entered into our reality. So that he could understand our shame, understand our guilt, understand our fear, understand those things that bring about anxious thoughts. That he could understand what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
that he could understand, and he knows in a way that we will never know what it is like to be abandoned by God. Sometimes we feel, God, you're not listening. God, you don't care. God, I haven't heard you for a little while. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never, ever get beyond the pain that Jesus experienced. We will never, ever walk into a darkness that was more intense than the darkness that Jesus entered into. He knows our nature from the inside out. He knows that we are but dust. He knows exactly how we feel in every situation. What he saw and felt and suffered here on earth as Jesus, the son of Mary, is etched indelibly in his hand in his heart, in his memory, sustaining a sympathy for us that will never be outdone. I don't know what the angels must have thought in heaven. Because they knew Christ was God. They knew he was their creator. The Bible describes the response of the angels again and again and again to God in heaven. They must have just been stunned, shocked, at a loss for any kind of words as they were preparing for the incarnation. And then as they watched God enter into humanity and suffer and experience the ravages of a sinful world, the ravages of human evil, it must have absolutely shocked them. Wondering, will this ever end? And we know it ended on a cross. So here in the incarnation, I think, is the greatest reality that God has ever given to us. God who became flesh in order to make it possible for us to get back in a relationship with him. Who made it possible for us to have one who stands in our place and bears the penalty and the weight of our sin. One who understands exactly what I face in any given second of my life. And quickly, just so we sort of wrap this thoroughly through about the humanity of Jesus, it's important to understand the fullness of the humanity of Christ. It's taught in the Bible. It's a spiritual reality that's demonstrated in the virgin birth. It's a very real flesh and blood like you have in order that he could save us fully. It's a present truth. Do you know that? Like, what do you think about the humanity of Christ? Do you think that now he's floating around as a spirit in heaven? This is one of the amazing things that, 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 that the Bible says is that God has forever now taken on human flesh. We think about the, ascent, or the resurrection. When Jesus was raised, what, did he, what was he raised in? He was raised in his resurrection body. And what did he walk around in for 40 days? It was a resurrection body. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. Here was Jesus raised from the dead by the power of God. Not a spirit floating around, but actually flesh and blood. Or flesh and bones, sorry. That's important to make that distinction for some reason. 
And they gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. For 40 days, he appeared in his resurrected body to up to 500 people at one time. Well, did he lose it at the ascension then? Like he went back into heaven? Did he, did he lose his flesh and bones? Well, no. Remember, they were standing on the mountain as he goes up. The angels say to him, they watched him go up into heaven. But then what did the angels say to him? Say to them, as he was lifted up in the cloud out of his sight, they were gazing intently into heaven and they said to him, the same way that he is gone, he will come again. So right now, Jesus is in heaven in his flesh and bones. He's not giving that up. This is amazing that God has forever entered into flesh and bones. But then think about this. He's going to come back in flesh and bones. That's what the scripture tells us again and again. When he appears, what? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. For just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. There it is again. Christ will forever be in a body. This is incredible. It wasn't a temporary thing that God did. It became an eternal reality for the ages to come, that forever Christ will be God in the flesh. One day he's coming back, and what a day that's going to be. We are going to see him, and he's going to come in a form that will blow us away. The splendor, the majesty of God himself. It, it's, it, it, it would be like the transfiguration when the two uh, or the three disciples were up on the Mount Trigger of, of, of Transfiguration and it said that Jesus just shone. Why was it? Because the glory of God was, was the, the veil was lifted for a few moments on that mountain and they saw that this is God. He's going to come with a kind of glory that was witnessed on Mount Sinai in the days of Moses. He's going to come with the splendor that Isaiah witnessed as he was seeing God on the throne and fell on his face. He's going to come with an entourage of his angels in the glorified church and a voice of a trumpet that wakes the dead. His coming is going to be with the accompaniments that has never been seen since the creation of the world, the resurrection of dead, the great day of the Lord, the reformation of the new heavens and the new earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every eye will see him. Why? Because he is the God incarnate. Work it through. Realize it's not just a theological concept, but it's a necessary concept practical reality that the eternal son of God became fully human born to Mary Father thank you
just for a couple of minutes in your word, just contemplating the wonder of the incarnation. And Father, sometimes we have to dust off these verses and consider them again in a fresh way because we just either take things for granted or we forget the magnitude of what actually took place when you entered into this world, when you appeared, so to speak, when you were born of a woman. It's actually quite helpful if we think it through. I know it blows my mind to think about your vastness, your immortality, your eternal existence, your power, your might. But it's rather, I don't know, amazing if I understand it or accept it that you became human. You identify with me. You understand me. You know my wrestlings. You know my joys. You know my sorrows. You know my physical pain. You know my emotional pain. You mediate between me and God. You make it possible for me to be in a right relationship with God because of your humanity. Father, would you help us just work through that a little bit if we have known you for a while? And for those that maybe are searching and just asking questions and just wrestling in their own heart with the staggering claim of the incarnation. Father, would you draw them into an understanding of why that is so marvelous, why it is so helpful, and why they need a human divine savior. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.